Welcome to the Association 4.0 podcast, your association's no-fluff playbook to navigating and thriving in Industry 4.0 or the digital marketplace. Each week, we bring expert insights to help you and your association stay ahead of the curve. Hello, my name is Sherry Budziak, and I'm the host of the Association 4.0 podcast. I am also co-founder of .org Community and founder and CEO of .org Source, a consultancy to associations. Today, my guest is Sharon Rice. Sharon is .org Source's Managing Director of Business Strategy. She has spent the majority of her career in the association space. Prior to joining .org Source, Sharon was Vice President of Strategy at ASCM, the Chicago-based Association for Supply Chain Management. She is an expert on strategic and business planning, growth strategies, and comprehensive product development. I like to call her our resident futurist. So Sharon, thanks for joining me today. Oh, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad always to talk to you. So I'm excited. So as my listeners know, I'm passionate about helping leaders develop skills for navigating this fast-paced digital market. This conversation is one of several that I am inviting guests to discuss their strategies and advice for future success in this new environment. It's exciting to have the opportunity to explore this topic with Sharon because she's an avid student of the industry and always sees around the corner before the rest of us do. So let's get started, Sharon. Yeah, great. So Sharon, you were deeply involved with the development of our first book, Association 4.0, Positioning for Success in an Era of Disruption. How has your thinking since then changed? You know, it's interesting. When we were going through that process of essentially talking about Industry 4.0 and the impact that that was going to have on associations, which is kind of where we coined that term Association 4.0, we were really looking at the impact of digital transformation and business intelligence on the work of associations. And obviously, as you know, we interviewed a number of association leaders who we felt really understood and the difference that digital transformation was going to make in the future. And we tried to identify kind of those characteristics that set them apart. And what was interesting is that that was all pre-pandemic, right? The book was published prior to the pandemic. And then as we rolled into the pandemic, what we realized is that we were seeing an acceleration of these trends. And in fact, the pandemic added a new dimension because all of a sudden we were working with a virtual association workforce. And that I think was really interesting. Now association leaders are trying to figure out how to harness you know, their largest expense, their association staff, as well as their most important asset, their volunteer leaders into what I think is a single cohesive culture of innovation. And in many cases, maybe not surprisingly, the interesting thing to me is that we're seeing a lot of smaller associations who are able to lead in this way. And I think the reason is that they're more agile, they're less bureaucratic, they're more dependent on their volunteer leaders. So everything can't be done by staff. And in a lot of cases, they're able to move faster than, let's say, their larger counterparts. However, the rub, the key ingredient that they're missing a lot of times is essentially cash. So they don't always have the resources to do what they need to do, even though I think they're well positioned to do it. And so one of the things we're seeing is more smaller associations looking for both nonprofit and for-profit partners that can potentially fund these game-changing programs that they're trying to, to implement. Overall, I would say I'm amazed at how on track we were with Association 4.0. I think it's still very, very relevant, 
but we're kind of moving into a new phase right now where it's what we're understanding is how important culture is to digital transformation. Oh, absolutely. So Sharon, you interact with so many different groups and leaders. And what are you currently seeing as kind of the trends that we should all be aware of? Well, and I think in my work, which focuses really to a large extent on planning, I'm starting to see that in needing to make a transition from strategic planning to what I would call more iterative planning. And I think that this has been, you know, kind of under the radar for a while. So we came out of the pandemic and we saw a big uptick in our strategic planning business. And I think that's because for, you know, two or three years, associations weren't getting together. They weren't able to have their regular strategic planning meetings that they, you know, kind of in the cadence that they would have before. And so, you know, certainly most associations will still have a major strategic planning meeting every three to five years. As we're doing strategic planning with groups right now, what we're trying to do is start to move them more towards iterative planning which is something that we're seeing and it couples with digital transformation, I think, in the corporate world. So when I talk about iterative planning, what I'm really talking about is constantly adapting that original plan based on the business intelligence that we have coming from ongoing collection and analysis of our customer data. We can make changes to our assumptions, our risk, our scope, our budget, and even schedule. And usually those changes are made by a team, a lot of times a staff team that are responsible responsible for implementing and monitoring the plan. And I think one of the big differences between strategic planning in the traditional sense and iterative planning is that with strategic planning, we kind of set the plan and then we went to implement it and we reported back to the board on how we were doing implementing that original plan. With iterative planning, creating the strategic plan, which I think is still you know that visioning exercise of, of what's the future we're trying to create, but then instead of that, you know, kind of set it and bake it plan, it's changing. And in some cases, that plan is changing every quarter, not even every year. And so coming back to the board, we can tell them this is the direction that we're heading or this data made us look to this direction or we abandoned this strategy because it wasn't bearing fruit. So this constant kind of embedding planning into the work of the association, I think is a really important trend that we're seeing right now. Other than that, I do think, you know, we have to go back to the transition that we're making to the digital workforce. You know, it's interesting to me, we're hearing more and more about associations that are giving up their leases and just making a 100% transition to virtual. That's fascinating because as a as an executive of a certain age, for example, me, it's a little bit hard to make that transition. And I think of my more extroverted CEO clients who really get a lot of their energy from staff interaction. I actually had one CEO tell me that they have a whole lot less to do. They had a, a very strong executive team, but they were realizing how much of their day-to-day work had to do with being able to drop in on staff or staff dropping in on them. And so I think this is a trend that's making a big impact on a lot of CEOs and they're trying to adapt to it and they need to adapt to it. I mean, because clearly the virtual workforce is here to stay. It doesn't matter as far as I can tell what generation a staff member is. It just seems like people really feel like they benefit both professionally and personally from that opportunity to work remotely. So that's a challenge, a trend that we're continuing, I think, to adjust to. 
too. Yeah. To your point with the planning, I recently had a conversation with a CEO that was telling me that they've applied for grants. And I said, well, how do you deal with that with the staffing? Because obviously, you know, there's a period of time once they receive a grant and these are huge grants and projects. And he said, well, we have our strategic plan. I go back to the board. I say, well, these are the things we're going to wait on. We're not going to do them right now. We're going to focus on realigning staff to work on these grants. And then we'll get back to that. So to your point about the iterative process, like there's opportunities. And I think that's one thing, you know, as an entrepreneur, you see like, oh, there's an opportunity. I can go and, you know, go this direction or that direction. And with slow moving associations and boards, and they're not as agile. So to your point about, you know, the smaller associations being able to be more agile, I think just this mindset of, okay, we have a plan, but when there's opportunities that present themselves or there's things that aren't working, mm -hmm. let's be open to adjusting those plans and staying on a course, but making sure that we're focused on our mission, but also able to look at what these opportunities are. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, the key kind of evolution in the area of planning really is data, right? It, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, we'd create a plan. Maybe we talked about smart objectives. A lot of associations did. So how are we going to measure our success based on this? But it was very difficult to set good metrics because we didn't have access to the data you know, we'd have to do a survey I and mean, keep surveying our members to try to get some input back from the members. But now we can essentially track their behaviors. We're collecting data all the time. We can look at that. And that gives us the ability to be, again, more iterative in the planning as opposed to doing a big, which still happens quite a lot, do a big membership survey right before you do your strategic plan and use that as the basis of that kind of backward looking data as the basis of moving forward. It obviously works a whole lot better if you can use real time data to make real-time decisions. Sure. So Sharon, what trends are you seeing that are outside of the association that are having an impact? You know, it's interesting if we think about the fact that different trends are so interrelated, like we can't separate them. So we were talking about digital transformation and, and I do think this is interesting. So we're still with associations, especially we're still moving towards digital transformation, even though we've been talking about it for a really long time. Yeah. And I don't know... If you have a feel for this, I would say if we were thinking about associations who have kind of are successfully navigating digital transformation, I would put it at 20%. I don't think it could be higher than that. I think it's still, you know, very much an issue that we're dealing with. And then we lay on top of that, this remote work and the impact that that's having on culture. And if we look outside of the association industry and try to, to look at the for-profit world and how are these things, these same dynamics, how are they coming together to impact for-profit organizations, this relationship between digital transformation, remote workforce, and corporate culture is just really interesting to me. They're not unrelated. We were heading towards that virtual workforce prior to the pandemic. The pandemic just sped that up, right? They just yeah. made kind of come to fruition much, much faster than we would have thought. Recently, I've been reading a book that brought my attention back to a very old slide deck of Netflix. I had a copy of it and, and then went back onto the Netflix website. I think it's called the Netflix culture presentation, but on the website, if you go to jobs.netflix.com slash culture, they've updated and they lay it out. What's really interesting to me about the Netflix culture is that they have very intentionally designed that culture to make them special. You know, this is how they're going to succeed. And it has five elements to it. Which, you know, if we look at and analyze kind of vis-a-vis -vis the association culture, we start to see why a company like Netflix 
can move faster and keep adapting to challenges and competition in a way that some types of associations can't. So like there are five principles, the things that make them special include encouraging decision-making by all employees. So essentially they don't have a levels of hoops that have to jump through. If an employee has an idea and they vetted the idea and it stays sound, it's something that they can implement. Number two is that they share information openly, broadly, deliberately. And I would assume that given human nature, that's maybe not true for everybody, but at least when it's not happening, it can be called out because it's part of the value of their culture. Communicating candidly and directly, staff members at all levels being able to call out maybe bad decisions that are being made by management. They talk about keeping only their highly effective people. And this one's a little crushing in a way because personally for me, when I had a staff organization, I definitely had a fondness for people that had given so much of their time and energy to the association, even if they weren't highly effective in ways that their job had changed, or maybe they weren't effective as I would want them to be ever. And I think, you know, there's a part of me that wants to protect those people too. But at Netflix, they just call it out. They say, we keep only our most highly effective people. So you can do a good job and moved along from Netflix if they don't see you as kind of hitting that upper tier. And then number five is they essentially avoid rules. So if you look at that culture and the way that it serves Netflix and continues to serve Netflix, it's really pretty different than I think what the standard association culture is. We're much more, especially large associations, our culture tends to be more hierarchical, we're more siloed. You can make the case that maybe we're more stale and more rigid. Coming back to Association 4.0, again, when we talk about what it's going to take for associations to be successful in the future, we've got these great for-profit examples that we can start looking at and comparing and contrasting. And I do think we need, you know, in general, when we talk about Association 4.0, to really talk about what the culture of Association 4.0 is and needs to be to advance associations in the future. Yeah, that's some really good points, Sharon. As you're talking, I'm reflecting, thinking about our digital transformation projects with associations. And to your point, in order to move the needle, we're doing a lot of change management, especially for those organizations who are siloed. We're pulling together teams to kind of get them out of the mentality of, Marketing just does this and IT just does that. And the organizations that we've worked with that are open to that make some really great strides and, and are really successful. The ones that can't because their culture is not sharing information and not collaborating and being siloed and that hierarchical processes, either it takes them much longer than it should. And at the end, they're not as successful because we'll hear things like, why did education go off and implement the LMS that way? Well, because you let them, which was fine, but only education had input into that implementation where other people in the organization could have either looked at it differently or had other ideas or thoughts. It's kind of ironic to me is, you know, we talk about DEI and diversity and bringing people to the table at the board or whatever. And I'm like, well, we need to be doing that diversity of thinking on some of these projects in order to innovate and move ourselves forward. So I know that kind of went off on a tangent, but it's just no, so I think it's very related. Yeah. Yeah. So in your opinion, what do you think are the biggest future challenges for associations and how they can 
be prepared. Well, I, I just want to reiterate what you were saying. That's, you know, comes to top of mind to me because I think most associations, the biggest challenge that they're faced with right now is learning how to develop and change faster. And again, that's a cultural thing. You know, when I think about it, I feel like at OrgSource, we've been talking about agility forever, yeah. <laughs> like a de decade. One of the most interesting things I think about OrgSource and our perspective is that in one way or another, we're all very tied to the tech world. And you think about Kevin owning a, a software company, obviously your background with digital marketing and various organizations that you've served when I was, you know, first a consultant doing system selections. I mean, we have this connection to the tech industry. And what's super interesting right now to me is that perspective, you know, kind of comes into our work. And it couldn't be more timely because tech companies are really leading the way in terms of showing other types of companies, including associations, how to be more agile. And we just talked about, you know, the values of Netflix, for example, that's a tangible thing. You can look to Netflix and say, how do we create a culture that is going to be more friendly to digital transformation and constant change and constant development. You know what, also, I should not neglect to mention that in our digital transformation assessment, which, when was that first developed? Got to be, what, seven, eight years old? Yeah, at this point? Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a big component in it that talks about culture. So even, you know, seven, eight years ago, we were realizing what that connection between digital transformation and culture, you know, really is. And so I do think the biggest challenge that associations have right now is making a change in a culture and doing that intentionally and not looking at somebody else's culture and say, okay, well, you know, we're going to adopt that culture, but really looking at where the organization is being honest about what the culture is, what culture we need to create in order to be successful and digital transformation and how we're going to make that transition, how we're going to do that change management. One of the things that I thought was so interesting, you know, when I started my consulting career, I was mostly working in healthcare. And then when I went to ASCM, it flipped over to mostly working in manufacturing and engineering on the supply chain side. And when I came back to mostly working with healthcare and especially medical group, physician-based groups, one of the shocks to my system was that, you know, medical societies use the term president versus chair of the board. And what I came to understand is that that presidential model, as opposed to the chair model for that top elected official of the board, really is cultural. It really makes a difference. In those medical societies that, and it's not 100% across the board, but where they have president as being the term they're using for the leader of the board, let's say, it really suggests, and in many cases is reality, that that leader of the board sets a direction for the organization. Yes. And in some cases really feels like they're entitled to do that, that they have this journey and they finally made it to president. Yes. And now they're going to set that direction. And one client I had, I'll never forget this. We were doing strategic planning. And when I do strategic planning, I talk to all the board members individually ahead of time. And then we have a very, you know, kind of collaborative group exercise. And we finished that. And I was coming down the elevator to go to the airport. And the president met me and she said to me, I'm going to be emailing you the strategic plan. And I said, that's funny because I thought I was emailing you the strategic plan based on what we talked about. She's like, no, I decided to do it myself. And so she actually, after all that time, we worked collaboratively. And I said to this executive director, when I called her later, I said, well, that certainly never happened to me before. And she said to me, yeah, this is the major problem, right? That the president feels like they have 
the right, you know, to kind of set that direction. In other associations that are not medical societies, it's more chair of the board based, it's more collaborative. And I think, you know, when we compare those two models, that one of the challenges that medical societies have to get over is this president model, that it's not just kind of esoteric and nomenclature based. It really is the culture of those organizations, which also tend to be very hierarchical. So considering that we work with so many medical groups, I think that this for our client base is one of the major challenges they're going to have to get over. And I think for a lot of CEOs or executive directors of those groups are going to be really glad to be able to make that transition and others will find it, I suppose, a challenge. That was some really good insights of kind of the why and kind of gave me some flashbacks to my <laughs> early career. I'm like, okay, who's the president? What are we doing now? <laughs> so, yeah, it's hard. Uh, it's rips off. Yeah. So what do you feel are the greatest opportunities? It's really interesting. I think for associations that are going to be able to make this transition into the digital world, and it, I don't think it matters what size they are particularly, because I, we're just seeing, as we talk about large medical groups, right? They may be the Kodaks or the Polaroids of the future where they end up going out of business, too big to fail in a way, right? But they don't make the transitions. And so they're kind of eaten up by for-profit organizations. But I think probably the greatest opportunities for associations continue to be leveraging a base. So our membership, our volunteer leader base is still, I think, the greatest asset that associations have. It's not that I underestimate the value of staff. Of course, staff are critically important. But when we think about what distinguishes an association from a for-profit organization, it's still about the volunteer leadership and the member. And even though the lines between member, subscriber, customer have gotten a lot blurrier, I think that associations still have an advantage because of that relationship to the, the member. Now, I will say, while that's a great opportunity, I do think it's one that we can't take for granted. And I feel like one of the greatest dangers associations face is kind of squandering those resources by taking them for granted and not saying, how do we continue to evolve and meet the need? So I think the opportunity is taking our base critical assets and continually increasing and improving those relationships and evolving those relationships so that the association really continues to be the rising tide that floats all the boats in the profession. Having said that, for-profit competition is becoming you know, much more difficult to manage. So I think one of the opportunities there is the for-profit, nonprofit partnership. It's not easy to pull off necessarily because I think, you know, traditionally associations that have engaged with for-profit partners do it on their own terms, even though it may not feel that way. It often is that way. We have to kind of think about, well, how do we work together to advance again, our common customer, our common interest? Even in our industry of associations, I was talking with supplier partner yesterday and they started talking about their plans for 2024 talking about getting small groups together and all of these things that they're doing, quote unquote, for free to bring people together, to share knowledge, all the things. And I was like, okay, so that's interesting. They're directly competing with some of the work that some of the other organizations are doing. So not at the scale that probably you're referring to, because it's easy to do now because of social yeah. media and the reach that you have. I thought that was kind of interesting. So how do you feel that the role of associations in society is changing? Do you feel it's expanding, contracting, or completely reshaped? And do you think organizations will need to be revisiting their mission? Or do you see them taking on new kinds of responsibilities? 
That's a lot. And one question that became three. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I think in general, the role of associations in society is contracting. I truly don't think the reality is that it's expanding. It just, it is contracting. I think as we've been talking about over the last year at different.org community events, we have a deficit of trust right now. And that deficit of trust it extends across all of our institutions in society. And it's not just in the United States, it's you know across the globe. I don't think association members hold their association at the same level of esteem as they used to. And I also think that may not even be directly related to what the association is doing or the value it's providing the members. But again, this general you know inclination towards distrust that has been growing over a couple of decades now. And I think that that is impacting associations. I think we have, you know, some industries where that's more true than other industries. So still, you know, within the medical specialty, I'll call out medical specialty organizations and say that their retention rates tend to be very, very high still. Their challenges often have to do with recruitment, you know, from being a medical student into full membership of the association. I think people in general, professionals, especially in general, are more skeptical about the value that an association brings. They don't as often just belong because it's the professional obligation to belong. So it's getting more challenging to prove out the value that an association has. And I think that's a pretty kind of different place than where we were, let's say, even 25 years ago. One of the changes, and this is obviously related to digital transformation. And and I think that, you know, when you talk about revisiting the mission, it's kind of what I think about, but decades ago, literally decades ago, I worked for an association management company was owned by a woman named Phyllis Hager. And I was probably in my twenties at the time. And she was giving me a little lesson on the evolution of associations. And by and large, it still, you know, is true today that especially membership-based professional organizations start by you know, kind of bringing and creating a membership base. And then they start creating education programs to advance the profession and the understanding and the skills of the field and the competencies. And then many associations will go to that next level, which is validating that knowledge and understanding through certification. We can advance beyond that to advocacy. So obviously kind of lobbying for the interests of the people that are practicing in the profession. And then the kind of penultimate destination for an association is more related to public affairs, which is you know, essentially elevating the perception of the profession in the eyes of the public. So the public understands how important the profession is. When I look back on that model, which has really remained valid over any number of years, one of the big impacts of digital transformation is social media, of course. And what social media allows associations of all levels of resource to do is elevate the perception of the profession in the eyes of the public through the social media posts, right? So when I think about that evolution now, I think that associations need to be paying more attention to proving out the value of the professions and the industries they represent to the public, that the public needs to become more aware of the importance of these organizations. And in almost every planning session I'm doing right now, this is coming up as being critically important. So revisiting the mission, a lot of missions for professional associations, especially we'll talk about educating the professional, but we're really in many ways talking about educating the public and the importance of the professional 
as well as obviously maintaining the competencies of the professionals through education and certification, et cetera. For associations, you know, you used to have to be an association of a certain level, have a certain level of resource to have a PR firm. You know, almost every association today has to take on that kind of responsibility. And again, that's directly related to digital transformation. Absolutely. And I know our customers aren't doing a good job of that at all. I have a 22-year-old and a 17-year-old, and I see how they're consuming content. And associations just aren't there. Really something that I think is really important that you point out. The other thing that I was going to say or bring up is I was talking to a CEO the other day about content and technology and AI And there's this concern about giving away our information. He was a medical society exec and he said, yeah, but our mission is to improve patient outcomes, keeping content Mm -hmm. too close to you and with improving patient outcomes. Because if our goal is to improve patient outcomes, then our content should be free. And he said, most of their content is and is available. We're talking about missions and we start getting into technology and AI. I know that a lot of associations right now are kind of where we were back in 95, where everyone's locking everything down and locking down content. But I think we have to think a little bit broader. And how we monetize today. Absolutely. To lock it down is usually a monetization strategy, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So Sharon, I know you're always watching the latest business thought leaders and authors who we should be paying attention to. So what is the must read book that I think every exec should be checking out today. It's interesting because we had a conversation, you and I and, and Kevin yesterday about the upcoming February.org community event and what we should be focusing on. And after that conversation, I was thinking, hmm, I need to kind of catch up. I think there's something out there that I'm not really understanding. I'm not feeling that in touch. So being at the library, which I'm <laughs> at the library all the time, I picked up a book that I have decided after reading, you know, about a quarter way through yesterday, it's going to be the most important book that I've read in a long time. And I say that, you know, not all the way through yet, but the book is called The Geek Way, The Radical Mindset That Drives Extraordinary Results. It's written by uh, Professor Andrew McAfee. I'm not sure he's still a professor, maybe a consultant at this point, but the book really centers around kind of the rationale and the process of building corporate culture that is based on the principles of science, ownership, speed, openness. And, you know, it really kind of connects back to what I was talking about with the Netflix culture. In fact, it kind of points that out. And it's really kind of enmeshed me in this thinking of, we know what we need to do to a large extent. We just don't know how to get there. You know, here's the process. You do step one, you do step two, you do step three, you do step four. And often with our engagements, that's what we do, right? We do an analysis and then, you know, we say, okay, we think this is what we need to do. It's our recommendations. And here's how you do it. We give them a roadmap on how to do it. But the success factor of them being able to actually accomplish it, I think more often than not, isn't do they know the right steps to take to do it? Although I'm not saying that's not important. It is important to know what steps you need to take to do something. But what this book has me thinking about is how important the environment, the cultural environment is in the association for it to be able to be successful. 
And what I'm really thinking about right now is how do we help associations kind of start that journey of cultural change? It's not something that can be impacted, you know, or affected rather in a single year, for example. You can't do a culture project where you say, okay, we're going to define our culture and then we're going to implement the culture. It's more nuanced than that. And so I'm doing a lot of you know, thinking as I'm reading this book right now on really how do we help associations make the cultural changes they need to make, create a new culture that's going to help them be successful in the future. And how do we do that based on science, you know, data science to a large extent, employee ownership, you know, feeling like this business is my business, being able to be faster to market, which is just so critical right now. You have to be able to move. And with all the layers of decision-making that we have an association, I think that's one of the most difficult changes to make. And then of course, you know, kind of that openness of culture. So again, that book is called The Geek Way, easy to remember, but I think it's really an important book for people to look at. I will also say there's another book that deserves an honorable mention and it's called How Big Things Get Done. It was written by Brent Flyberg, who is a project manager. He basically talks about whether you have, you know, a home improvement project or some big corporate project that you're trying to implement. How do you do it in a kind of a disciplined way so that you can be successful, you know, getting that done. And I think again, in our business project management, we just keep coming back to that. Once you decided what you're going to do and what your big audacious project is going to be, then how do we have the discipline to be able to actually implement that? I think we see that as being really critical for associations. Sharon is an avid reader and she'll go through, I don't even know how many books every year, but she only gives me the one or two that I need to really focus on, which I really appreciate because <laughs> I can't say that I'm the same. So, so that's great. But Sharon, as you were talking, I was thinking about this culture. And, mm -hmm. you know, when I started my career and everybody knows the story of, you know, David Martin came into the office and I was sitting at a desk and said, you want to help me develop a website? And I was like, what's a website? We had put together a team and nobody knew what they were doing and nobody cared that nobody knew what they were doing. It was like, let's pick these five people and have them figure this out. Then when I went to the dermatologist, it was the same thing. To me, I was a kid, right? They gave me a desk, a phone, and said, here, start a web business. So I was like, okay. About two weeks into that job, I thought I made a big mistake. I walked into the CEO's office and I said, hey, Brad, what if this doesn't work out? And he said, ah, don't worry about it, Sherry. She said, we'll find you another job here. And I was like, okay. So I went back to the desk and I started a web business that we had mm -hmm. for almost 10 years. I didn't worry about failing because they were like, okay, we'll find you something else to do. You're not going to get fired and we're all good. So that is not a typical culture, right? <laughs> At an association, probably take it for granted now that I was given those opportunities and was able to kind of thrive under that leadership in that environment. Yeah. And you know what, I think that it coming back to, you know, the Netflix values that I talked about, the one that makes me feel a little hinky is keeping only our highly effective people. I think what you're pointing out is really important that being highly effective doesn't necessarily mean a hundred percent successful. So when Netflix says, you know, we're going to keep only our highly effective people, I know they have defined what highly effective really means. And it doesn't mean that you are successful with every endeavor that you do, right? What you are looking 
looking for when you went to talk to your CEO was sometimes of security, right? Like you needed a certain yeah. level of security to be able to go, okay, it's going to be okay. I'm just going to go for it. It sounds simple to say, well, we're only going to keep our highly effective people. But I think for a lot of associations and especially for a lot of CEOs, they need to spend more time figuring out what highly effective actually means. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. What is the characteristic that in their eyes makes somebody highly effective? And also being tolerant of if you have a highly effective person and they weren't successful in an endeavor, what makes them highly effective typically is that they've learned from that. That learning is invaluable. And if we don't nurture failure the way we nurture success, we never advance. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I have several examples. I'll give you one. We went to an organization, huge digital transformation project we were working on that was going to take over three years to do. Like literally they were like running their organization out of spreadsheets, no lie. But they had a for-profit company that the CEO was just going to get rid of. And I was like, hold hold on a second. There are people in that group that you might not think that group's effective doing what they're doing, but they can help us lead these projects. Mm -hmm. They were really good project managers that they did not see because they had client projects that weren't part of what the association's day-to-day was. They had people who were really good at change management and really good at getting people together, not necessarily had the skill sets to lead, but we train those people and they're still there now. It's been, I don't know, over 10 years, highly effective staff. So sometimes it's, I had a podcast recording with Don and LD yesterday about, you know, sometimes people just aren't on the right seat on the bus. You really need to take a look and say, Hmm. And I've done that myself as a leader, mm-hmm. but I've hired people that I think can do something really well and they fail. And I'm like, hold on a second. Let's really examine where they are thriving and you put them in that role. And next thing you know, they're brilliant. So yeah, I think that's a really important point. I mean, two things I think of one is that I drove past a company that I was let go from in less than a year. It just wasn't the right role for me. And when I was driving past it, I don't have an opportunity to drive past it very often. I had this pang of like, oh, that didn't feel good. I wasn't happy to be like, oh, it was in the nineties. So it's a long time ago. It wasn't ugly or anything. It was the right thing to do. And I was a real big girl about it, but it still stung. But it gave me an opportunity to reflect back and say, yeah, you know, not every role is right for every person. And if a role is not right for you, it doesn't mean that you're not going to be a high performing person in another role, which I think is, is part of the story you're telling here. The other thing I will also say is... You can say, you know, we only need to have the right people on the bus or we only hold on to our highly effective people, but there is a balance there. And that is that high turnover slows you down. So when we talk about needing to be, you know, fast and agile, if we have a turnover rate that's high, it's going to keep us from being able to be as fast and agile as we want. So again, it goes back to being super intentional about what are the characteristics of somebody that's successful in your organization? What are the right roles? How do we do that matching of roles? Yeah, I think that's really critically important. So Sharon, before we wrap up, any final thoughts or comments? You know, I think that we are kind of poised on a new era of associations. I don't have necessarily a really clear vision of that, but we are at this point, starting to see millennials coming into those CEO roles of associations and, you know, kind of the difference in perspective that they're making. 
you know, the number of people retiring in my generation, you know, kind of baby boomers is obviously increasing. And, you know, we didn't really have an opportunity to talk about that impact of the generational change in association leadership, but that's going to be something I think that's really interesting in the future and probably helps to make that transition to the culture that we're going to look for, but it's going to take a good amount of time. It does seem like association executives like to hang on past 65 Yeah. So I don't know how fast baby boomers are going to, it's going to take a while to clear that path out. And I don't mean to completely jump over Gen X, but Gen X executives are already well-established as CEOs as well. In fact, I, it would be interesting to know if we have more Gen Xers than baby boomers at this point. Do you have a guess? I don't. No, I don't. That would be interesting data. It would be interesting, but clearly, you know, the kind of the influx of millennials now being, you know, in that 40, 42 year old range and coming into those executive positions, I think, you know, that's going to be really interesting to watch. I will be watching from afar by the time that really happens. (laughs) So I'll be interested in seeing what's going on. But I do think we're kind of at a precipice of change with associations. And I also think associations can create the future that they want to create. It's all about being intentional. Well, thanks, Sharon, for a great discussion. We're going to have to do this again. This was yeah. always great to talk to you. I could talk to you all day. So, and thanks to our listeners. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. You can join us at one of our .org community events or reach out to us at Sharon at orgsource.com. So thanks, Sharon. Thank you, Sherry. We hope you enjoyed this episode and discovered tips and information that will add value to your leadership style and your association. .org Source specializes in positioning teams for success with solutions for technology, strategy, and marketing. Please contact us at info at orgsource.com or visit www.orgsource.com to find out how to keep your organization on track to Association 4.0.